Eighteenth of June, nineteen seventy-two, London Heathrow Airport. A British European Airways flight. There are one hundred twelve passengers on the plane. A mix of British, Belgian, American, South African, and Irish, among others, on board, set for Brussels. Some of the Irish citizens on board were pretty important for the time. Twelve of them actually were a part of something called the Confederation of Irish Industry, now called the Irish Businessmen and Employers Confederation, or IBEC for short. It's a lobbying group for business interests. Anyway, this group is going to Brussels so Ireland can start joining what is now called the EU. A significant flight for the Irish state, no doubt. But I want to talk about one man in that group. His name was Michael Sweetman. He was director of business policy of the Confederation of Irish Industry and a member of the political party Fine Gael. He led the referendum campaign for Ireland to join the EU, then known as the EEC at the time. When he was temporarily director of the Irish Council of the European Movement, he was a key person in creating a policy document for Fine Gael called "Towards a Just Society." The document attempted to shift Fine Gael to a different vision of Ireland than at the time. In the book of collected essays about Michael, the widest circle. It's suggested by one or two authors that Michael could have been the leader of Ireland in the future. However, early on in the book, when Michael was studying at the University College Dublin (UCD), there was a time when he was walking around Leinster House with his then girlfriend, when he said, "Don't let me go into politics." Michael married Barbara Becker and moved to Montreal to both work in an ad agency. They later came back to Ireland, and Michael did go into politics. I asked Michael's wife Barbara about why he reversed his decision. She said it was in his blood. So here he is, on British European Airways Flight Five Four Eight, ready to shape the future of a youthful nation. This flight, though, goes by another name: the Staines Air Crash. Flight five four eight crashed three minutes into its journey near Staines in England, killing all on board due to pilot error. Flight five four eight led to the mandatory installations of voice recorders in cockpits with all British registered airplanes. I think it's safe to say for Michael that this was not the expected impact that he meant to have by taking this flight. Then again, when Michael did decide to make the choice to do what was quote in his blood, he didn't really know what lay ahead for him. Maybe if Michael had stuck to his original choice of never going into politics, he may have been around today. Then again, it was in his blood. Did he really have a choice? If things had been different, maybe, just maybe, I would have known my grandfather. Over-informed. Hello, I'm Sebastian Stevenson. We never know the consequences of choices until we live them. That's why making a choice at best gives us pause and at worst paralysis. Not that long ago, a lot of the choices that we made as we define our lives into our twenties and thirties were constrained by our geography, nationality, race, or other factors. In general. Opportunity for most people has expanded over the past few decades. So, what do they mean for the 20 to 30-year-olds who are making choices today, and how? What are the decisions that we make that before were either made for us or were limited by where we are and who we are? Well, a lot. Do you want to get married? 
What about having children? What career is for you? Where should you live? Is there more opportunity in the city? Could I make it work in the country? What about another country? What are you going to eat today? Should I eat now or later? What do you want to do this evening? Do you want to go out? Should you go to the bathroom right now? Okay, you probably should go on the last one, but you get the idea. What does it mean to have a catalogue of possibility, of opportunity? This is Ashling O'Connor. Hi, I'm Ashling O'Connor. I am from Limerick, living in Dublin the past three, four years. Just finished my master's in applied social research in Trinity College, and now I've started a PhD. Ashling has published research based on interviews from Irish millennials, people in their 20s and 30s, to ask them what they think of being a millennial. I think, like, I did a, a search of newspapers from, like, January to August last year, and there was, like, 500 articles in, like, four or five of the broadsheets. And I was like, well, that's really interesting because it's all, you know, millennials are, you know, we're lazy, we're job hoppers. And it was all from the perspective of baby boomers, you know, the generation previous to us. But there was nothing from a millennial's perspective as such. There was a handful of stuff in the newspapers, but there was nothing in academic journals. It was all either how to keep a millennial in a job because we job hop or uh, how to sell us stuff because we're not spending our money. In the paper, she presented two key findings. The first was about how the amount of possibilities that we have in our lives, that catalogue of opportunity, has not allowed us to be happier, but has become the very thing that keeps us stuck. I call the whole finding, really, was like this burden of opportunity. And within that, this there was a paradox of choice. One girl in particular, she, she was really interesting. She said, we're spoiled for choice. And I went back and I didn't really know if she said spoiled, like I-L-E-D or I-L-T. So it was almost like she was saying, you could take it two ways, that we're so lucky to have all these choices or else, well, actually, we have too much and we're spoiled because of it, because we cannot function now because there's too much choice. So it, it's almost like incapacitated us. And a lot of people put it down to opportunities in terms of career. So they said, you know, baby boomers gave us all this opportunity and we want to, you know, show our gratitude to our parents' generation. So we're going to use all this opportunity. But we've almost too much choice then and it almost freezes you or makes you think twice about the decision. You're not as confident when you go into that decision because well, I did X, so now I'm missing out on Y. Or, you know, people don't seem happy with the choices that they make. So in terms of careers, let's say, you know, I interviewed a few women who said, well, you know, I went into my undergraduate and a lot of people hated their undergraduates. We went on into one sector of our job, hated that, moved country, tried another. And it's just this, like, circle. It's almost like they were um, vocalising this inner dialogue with me. One girl in particular said, well, you know, I'm 27 now and she was like, I'm in a steady relationship and I want to have kids, but then I want to start a PhD. So which one comes first? You know, do I put starting a family first over my career? And when my mother was my age, she had two kids and she was married. And there was this internal kind of fight as to which one to pick. You know, there's almost an expectation. And I don't know, is it kind of an Irish thing or a Western thing that, you know, by 30 you have a house and 2.5 kids or whatever the, the norm is, I suppose. Those women aren't alone, as studies in the UK and the US show a huge amount of college graduates end up not going into careers that are related to their field of study. A study run by New College of the Humanities in London published in 2014 showed that 96% of UK graduates had switched careers by the time they were 24. In the US, website CareerBuilder commissioned a study published in 2013 showing that 32% of college-educated workers never found work related to their college major. Even Ashling has experienced this, as Chris points out. 
And let's be clear, you've had major news outlets solicit your opinion. You have now given multiple major interviews about this. You just got your... Your research back, yeah, and you've got this grade, and you're like, I have a master's yeah, now. Exactly. I, like this is a f- so you've made all of these choices mm-hmm. that very definitively support you're going to be successful or are successful yeah. in some sense now, and you're still saying to yourself, What have I done? What have I done? Yeah, exactly, because you know, I was offered a six month contract before I was offered the PhD, and I remember having to go into that job and be, and they said, Well, let's try and counter your your offer, and I said, Well, I can't because you can't offer me a PhD, and I'm still like, like. I could be earning money, but now I'm, you know, investing in myself for the next few years. But I suppose four years for anyone is quite a long time, let alone when you're in, you know, your mid to late 20s. And there's this constant thing in your head, I suppose. And all my friends have thought it, everyone I interviewed, when my parents were my age. And that's the big thing. Like, you know, it, it always seems to go back to we have to follow the pillars that they followed, even though it's exceptionally difficult for us, like financially. And, you know, we don't have job security like they had potentially. And According to LinkedIn, which compiled data on their users and their job switching habits within five years of graduation, people who graduated in the 80s and 90s held 1.6 jobs compared to the 2000s of 2.85. Ashling's second finding, and this was something that she didn't specifically look out for, but kept coming up in her interviews, was the role of social media. Social media is the place to project what we want to be. And this compounds the issue of making the right choice. I think what I was most kind of surprised by, because all these people were highly educated and really reflective, like the interviews I started off quite abstract but the more we chatted the more they got into it and there was this consensus that everyone knew that their images online were curated to a certain extent and there was you know everyone was like yeah I know that my friend isn't like that on social media and then I said well why do you do it then and people couldn't really answer but they still chose to do it it was like they couldn't really articulate the reason behind it was it like everyone else does it so I have to do it too yeah I mean like the jury's still out on that one like I couldn't I couldn't really get to the bottom of it. It's something kind of scary that you've built this flawless image and yet that's probably going to be your history. Yeah. When you die that you had this flawless thing but actually maybe it was just it as fa- as false as fake as I don't a, know Hillary being an alien or something. Yeah. <laughs> I like I suppose you could kind of link the that finding of, you know, this validation on social media and the curating because like a lot of people said, you know, we're this generation that can have everything but we can't have it all. So there's potentially well, we can't have everything, but let's pretend we have it all online and just like fake it till we make it. And while mm. we're showing that we have it all, make the decisions behind the scenes and give ourselves a little bit of time to kind of panic. Mm. <laughs> what are we doing with my life? And that was one of the things that struck me when we were you know, talking earlier mm-hmm. is that these people very much had to were sh- being shaped by social media, but they weren't necessarily shaping their social media. Yeah, It's very much become this uncontrollable force yeah it's something that didn't really come up or i suppose like you could say are we like a social experiment of social media because we're that first generation to like Mm. and you would almost worry for the millennials that are younger than us you know so i was 16 when i went on social media but like you could ask an 18 year old now how old they were they were probably eight nine ten when they went on it um so like it's it's a scary thought really anything that you kind of has changed your perspective on what it is to live as a 20 to 30 year old from doing this kind of research? I didn't. Like I knew when I first started it that we get a bad name and a bad rap. But the more I, when I finished my thesis, I was like, oh, I'm just so sick of it, you know, because 
couple of months work and you just want to put aside but the more then I started getting engaged in like interviews or whatever I just keep, keep getting really frustrated I was like why do we get such a bad rap like in, like we're not all that bad um, and all these names for us like the whole generation snowflake thing and what because we care about social movements that's a bad thing or because we want to find the right career for us that's a bad thing or you know we're not buying houses well that's our fault and it's not our parents or or the previous government so it's just made me a little bit more I suppose um what would the word be I just want to hug everyone <laughs> <laughs> just all the millennials come here and I'll, but at the same time I do get annoyed by people that and I suppose it's not it's not our fault though like if you feed into that social media thing you're not doing it intentionally it's just the way things have gone a lot of work to pull back from it. One thing I'm sort of wondering about, so this narrative that we curate for ourselves online, mm-hmm. this is our best... Representation. Is, right, our best representation. Yeah. The assumption being, this is us making all the right choices. Yeah. What happens when you make the wrong one? Do we Are we able to recognize it? We, we certainly don't publicize it the same way yeah. when we... When we realize, oh, that wasn't the major. Oh, that wasn't the relationship. Mm-hmm. Oh, this having a kid did not solve the yeah. problems in my marriage. Um, in a weird way, are we making it harder to see the realism of what happens when you make yeah. a wrong choice, which is usually not catastrophic, frankly. It's actually really interesting because the amount of time I spent speaking about, you know, making sure you make the right decision. Not many, very many people admitted that they either made a wrong decision or, you know, actually they didn't verbalise it. One girl, she said that, um, you know, she, she did her undergraduate and there was a lot of people in her course that didn't like it too, but they stuck it out anyway. And because of that, they went from job to job in that sector trying to figure out what was right for them. So I suppose that was the closest you could come to somebody admitting to me that they'd made the wrong, the wrong, whatever that is, you know, what's the right decision? Mm. Um, that was the closest someone came to saying that I made the wrong choice that was not for me. So that almost implies that there was nobody who's actually made a bad decision yet, but there was this paralysis of if what happens if I make the wrong choice? I mean, you're you're an educated lady. What does happen? Yeah, the sky falls down, <laughs> and, you know. Not well. I can't say nothing, but let's get terribly philosophical and say, what's the you know? Isn't life about making choices? Maybe Ashling is right. Maybe life is about making choices. Choices that we may not like to make. We may wish for better or more, sometimes fewer choices. But sometimes the only way out is through. Making a choice at all is the only way to know if it turns out to be right. We leave you with an extract from Sylvia Platt's novel The Bell Jar that summarizes quite nicely what we've been getting at in this episode. I saw my life branching out before me like a green fig tree in the story. From the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig... A wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband and a happy home and children. And another fig was a famous poet. And another fig was a brilliant professor. And another fig was the amazing editor. And another fig was Europe and Africa and South America. And another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila and a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions. And another fig was an Olympic lady crew champion. And beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest. And as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black. 
and one by one they plopped to the ground at my feet. Executive producers are Alan Bennett and Paddy O'Leary. Our researcher is Chris Mesker, and I'm Sebastian Stevenson. We are a part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Check out our other podcasts at headstuff.org. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find the show. If you have any comments or suggestions, email us, overinformed at headstuff.org. They might show up on a future episode and we'd love to hear from you. You have been overinformed. <laughs>